So as we look at this psalm, I, I want to start somewhere perhaps a, a little strange, so, so, so bear with me. I want us to think about what shapes our imaginations and particularly the way economic thinking shapes our imaginations. Now, 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 now bear with me. Culture, you see, is like the, the air we breathe. We, we, we don't see it. We don't realise how immersed we are in it and how it affects us until we take a step back. Many years ago, um, over 30 years now, my wife and I lived up in the Blue Mountains in, in Lura, and I was studying at the college at the time. <clears throat> and so each week we would drive from Lura down the mountain into Sydney. And if you've done that, you'll know you, you get about halfway down the mountain and you see this grey-brown smear over the whole landscape, which is the air you breathe in Sydney. You see it when you're coming down, but when you're there, you don't notice it. It's just the air you breathe. Interesting. Our, our tradition, the, the evangelical tradition of which we're a part, I think, doesn't think much about imagination and the way it shapes us and how we see the world, what we value, how we understand ourselves and our place in the world who we should be, how we should live. And so we're at risk of finding our lungs polluted with an atmosphere that we don't even see, captive to things other than the gospel that has claimed us. And one of those things is the economy. Again, bear with me. Now, our economists want... Unlimited growth, that's kind of the deal, right? But in the midst of that, our economic thinking, our imaginations are also shaped by the assumption that we have to, at all times, compete with others for the limited resources that we need to survive, and perhaps if we're lucky to flourish. Think about just the last few weeks in the post-Christmas sales, if you've ever been in the midst of them or seen them on TV. I tend to just watch them because they're horrible things. And you, you see people, there's this abundance of stuff which has all been knocked down or claimed to have been knocked down in price. And people scramble for their lives to get this thing. Perhaps most memorably, now it's rather amusing, isn't it? You remember the early days of the pandemic and the great toilet paper crisis, yes? And if you remember it, that was a crisis that was actually precipitated by people's frantic desire to grasp and cling on to something that they thought was in short supply. And it was, they were the ones who made it in short supply. They were the ones who emptied the shelves, We don't just see it in shops or at real estate auctions, if you've seen them. It seems to seep into every cranny of life. We travel up and down the motorway to Sydney, and I find myself captured by this 
by this pattern of thinking, the sense that everyone on the road is my competitor. Yes? Some of you are probably much more godly than I am. Until you get to a car park. Yep. Often it's the, the way people shape their lives at work, isn't it? That for me to succeed, you have to fail, or at least I have to climb over you to get where I want, rather than this idea that perhaps the way to success is to all succeed together. I remember at college, this is a long time ago, this is back in the day when people read books, not on these things, but actual paper ones. Um, and in those days, there were certain books that were in high demand, and often they were in closed reserve. This was a section of the library where you weren't allowed to borrow things. You could take them, you could use them, and put them back. And I discovered, I discovered that people would take the books out of closed reserve and go and hide them somewhere else on a shelf in the library at Theological College. There's this sense that we have that we're in always in competition, that the only way for me to get is for you not to. And that's actually the way it works in the ancient world as well. Um, some of you are aware of what's called honour-shame cultures. Um, yep. Where the idea is that the key thing is where you stand in the social order. And in most honour-shame cultures, the way that you gained honour was by taking it from somebody else. It was this idea that it was a limited resource. Yeah? The world we inhabit, we feel, is a niggardly, miserly, impoverished world. There's only so much road space, so much success, so much money, so much honour, so much toilet paper. And we need to grasp what we want and hold it tight. Otherwise, someone else might snatch it from us. I feel breathless just thinking of it. Don't you? That way of seeing the world, an imagination shaped by an economy of privation, of limitation, of the grasp, is in stark opposition to the way this psalm invites us to see the world so different to the world that this psalm inhabits. And the way it shapes that world is by calling us to consider the ways of Yahweh, the Lord, the God of chesed, of loving kindness. We'll come to that word in a moment. And so what I'd invite us to do this morning is to learn from God. Now, this is a, a psalm of thanksgiving. Um, you can see that um, in the, the, we heard it in the passage read and in the, the bit that Matt drew our attention to in particular. In this psalm, thanks is everywhere. It's a technical thing, slightly better, is acknowledgement or confession, speaking the truth of what God has done. And that's everywhere. Thanksgiving, this acknowledgement of the goodness of God, is the air that this psalm breathes. You can see it here. Um, and you can see it in that bit that 
Matt read out, which is found in verses 1 and 8 and 15 and 21 and 31. It's everywhere, but perhaps less obviously, it's also a sum of instruction. Now it becomes clear at the end where the wise are invited to, to pay attention to these things, to consider the loving deeds of Yahweh. But it's already there right at the beginning. The call to, to give thanks for our words to be shaped by this and the instruction that the redeemed should say this, should tell their story as the new NIV puts it, or just say this stuff, tells the people of God how they are to see their world and how they're to respond. See, we, like the people of the Psalms, are the people of the God of Chesed, the beneficiaries of this God's actions. And that now shapes all we see and do. It's the air we come to breathe. Now, it's not just the psalmist for whom that's true. If we think for very long, and, and thank you, Matt, for reminding us of it, we're the beneficiaries of God's faithful mercy, not just in the world, the lives we inhabit, but particularly in the person of Jesus. And that, knowing that we have benefited from God's kindness, would capture us. And so the air that this psalm breathes is the air of the Lord's kindness, Yahweh's chesed, and the thankful acknowledgement that must follow. If culture is the air that we breathe, then this psalm invites us to a cycle, if I can put it this way, of respiration, of breathing in the kindness of God and breathing out thankful acknowledgement of it. That rhythm of chesed and gratitude breathes life into our redeemed imaginations. So this word, this word, chesed, it's, it's one of those words you need to practice. You probably want to practice by putting your hand up in front of your face, particularly in a world of COVID. Um, what does this world, word mean? It's, it's actually an incredibly rich word, almost impossible to translate. There, there, there are a bunch of words like that. that. Um, one of my favourites is, a, surprisingly, a Yiddish word. It should be up. Can you see that? Oh, you may not be able to read that. Can you read that? Anyway, uh, chutzpah is one of my favourite words, um, it, and it, it's effrontery or gall. You know, um, just the almost not quite arrogance, but the classic definition is given here. Um, that quality enshrined in a man who, having killed his father and mother, throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan. Chutzpah. Get it? Chesed is the word I want you to get. It's translated steadfast love or unfailing love. And it's a word that's best translated not by a word or even two words, but by a phrase. Well, actually... If you want to know the meaning of chesed, read the psalm. Because what it does is it gives us all these beautiful little pictures of what the chesed of the Lord looks like. 
So let's have a look at them. So one of the characteristics of Yahweh's Chesed is that this is a God who hears our cry and sets us free and does so in all sorts of ways. And there's a pattern that runs all the way through this psalm, isn't there? You would have heard it as you were hearing the reading. There's a need. The people find themselves in need, often because of sin, but not always. They cry out to God, and God grants them freedom, and then they're called to acknowledge. And each of these little stories we're given, because we're given little stories, aren't we? Each of them is a story of Yahweh's chesed, the kindness of of the Lord. We see it in these four snapshots. Yahweh is the God of covenant faithfulness. There's, there's one way you can translate chesed. Faithfulness to the agreements, the commitments that God has made to God's own people. And these are commitments that God kept even when Israel was in exile. That's the context in which this psalm is, is spoken people who, who have experienced the judgment of God because of their persistent refusal to walk in the ways of the Lord. The desert places that we read about here are an image of exile, um, an image taken from their first wilderness wanderings. And while, in one sense, God would be true to God's word if God just judged God's people and left them there, there's a deeper faithfulness at work, a deeper commitment to those purposes which drove the calling of God's people in the first place. And that covenant faithfulness brings the fulfillment, at least partial, of God's purposes of deliverance and blessing. That's where we find ourselves as Christians, is it not? We're people who, who know the, the righteous judgment of God and who know what it is to be brought home. It's interesting, when you read the New Testament, one of the images that runs through it, one of the images of what Jesus does is to bring exiled people home. God is also the God of covenant love who sets God's people free. Again, remember this is spoken to Israel in exile. And there are, a number, there are all sorts of interesting images that are used for how Israel finds themselves in this experience of judgment. They're wandering in the wilderness. They're trapped in prison. Yep. In uh, quite a, a, a nasty one, if you look at it. Um, the darkness is both an image of exile, but also the kind of experience you find in ancient prisons, which are often like holes in the ground with bars over the top. Yep. But notice, this hardship that they endure is their own fault. They find themselves in bondage to foreign powers because of their rebellion. Yahweh's chesed is Yahweh's covenant love which frees a sinful people from the consequences of their own rebellion. 
We know that, don't we? Uh, we know what it is to be rebels. We know what it is for God's love to set us free. Yahweh is also the God of mercy who heals God's people's sins. It's interesting when you look at this particular section, isn't it? The, the way that this, this speaks of sin kind of eating away at us from the inside. Yeah? This speaks of the way that an acknowledgement, a recognition of sin, or even failing to recognise sin, destroys us from the inside. Yahweh's chesed is the mercy that heals the, the eating away of sin. We know that freedom, don't we, from guilt and shame and all that comes with it. That's one of the things that the gospel invites us to. But now, the, these first three pictures are all pictures which are connected in some way to rebellion, to rejection of God, to sin and its consequences. This last one is not. See, Yahweh is the God of steadfast love who rescues us from harm. Now, these are just the ordinary risks of life. Now, in, in ancient Israel... There, weren't, there wasn't a lot of ocean going. Um, they had a bit of a coastline uh, on the Mediterranean, but they didn't spend much of their time there. Beaches were not places you went for fun. Right? Um, but, but this speaks of people who are, who are engaging in trade, um, and they're maritime trade. So they're getting on ships, going off and doing their stuff. So it was uncommon, but... Going out to sea was also seen as almost the riskiest thing you could do in ancient Israel. And that's the picture we have here, isn't it? This terrifying ordeal. And even those of us, um, uh, bump into Matt from time to time uh, down at the beach, even those of us for whom the beach is a place to go and have fun, we, we know that there are, there are some waves you don't catch. There are, there are sometimes, no matter how much fun it is to catch waves, there are some you just leave right alone. Hey, Matt? We know, you know what it is to, to see the incredible, overwhelming, terrifying power of the ocean. And that's the picture we have here. But that's just the ordinary risks of life, isn't it? It's not, there's nothing wrong about going for a surf. There's nothing wrong about trading on the ocean, but it can be dangerous. Just the ordinary stuff of life. I remember, again, um, many years ago, um, we were, my wife and I with three young kids were travelling overseas. Um, we'd actually gone to India where I was doing some teaching, heading off to the States where I was doing some further, uh, further research. And on the way, we stopped in at Frankfurt. Um, so um, uh, this is quite a long time ago. As you get off the plane, uh, we were going off to our accommodation. We were having a little stopover. And it had one of those then fairly new travelator things. 
Um, you know, you, you put all your bags on one of these trolleys and you put it on the travelator and the wheels lock. So we just come from India. It was, I don't know how many hours, 12 hours or something, managing three kids on a plane uh, for four screens. Um, so we were pretty jet-lagged. Got to the top of the travelator and the wheels didn't unlock. And so this trolley, we're heading to the end, and this trolley starts tipping back, and we've got six months' worth of luggage. And I think, um, who, which one of us is going to die here? Um, I, I, quite honestly, I, I, I can't remember. I, I can't remember if I prayed. I cried out something. Somehow or another, the trolley just did its thing, and the bags didn't crush us all, and we got off. We didn't do anything wrong, maybe a bit dumb, a bit jet-lagged, but it's just one of those things that happens in life, yes? And I now look back at that and I recognise God's goodness and kindness to a jet-lagged young family on their way from India to the US. I'm sure you all have stories like that. This is the God we love and worship and acknowledge. This, in fact, is how God governs the world. It's not just little snapshots. It's not just these individual actions. This is the shape of history, which is what these final verses show us. This God of chesed governs the world. In fact, that kindness, that love, that faithfulness, that deep, deep covenant commitment is a pattern of all existence. As we go through the rhythms of this psalm, we breathe in chesed and breathe out grateful acknowledgement. And as we do that, our lungs become in sync with the universe. And so, right at the end, we are called to do this. To acknowledge Yahweh's chesed. To acknowledge Yahweh's kindness. Everything we see in the history of the world, all we experience of God's goodness in our lives, all we know of the rich grace of God in our Lord Jesus, all of that is evidence of Yahweh's chesed, which prompts songs of joy from the righteous and silence from the wicked. And so, of course, if we're wise, we want to pay attention. What does that mean? If at the end we're called to consider the loving kindnesses of the Lord, how do we wise up in light of this inexhaustible, unfathomable chesed. It's interesting. Um, see, uh, this rhythm that I'm talking about, this rhythm of godly imagination, shapes not just this psalm, although it does that, but the book of Psalms as a whole and the way the book ends. I'm not sure if, if you've got, it's not on what you saw on the screen, but if you have a paper Bible, then you will see that Psalm 106 ends book four of the Psalms and Psalm 107 starts book five of the psalm. 
Book five of the Psalms, this closing section, is a series of reflections on, on what it is to live as the redeemed people of God. This is the turning point of the book of Psalms. Book four speaks largely of a longing for release from bondage, and that's now matched by reflection on God's past kindness to God's people. That's what shapes our imagination. That's what it is to be wise. These pictures of Yahweh's chesed, covenant faithfulness, covenant love, mercy and steadfast love are the air we breathe, the shape of our imagination. Mays puts it this way in his commentary on the Psalms. We're the hungry and thirsty who've been fed. We're the bound who've been liberated. We're the sinners deserving death who've been given life. We are the fearful before the terrors of existence who've been given hope. And so what does that mean? What does it mean for us to, to shape this culture of kindness, for this to be the pattern of our imagination? rather than the culture of the economy. Well, one thing is to, to learn to thank and worship. Um, there's an old song I seem to recall that speaks of counting your blessings. That's not a bad place to start, is it? To spend some time reflecting on the ways in which we have experienced all of God's kindness. But we don't just count our blessings we are called here to make those blessings count. To allow God's character to shape our character. For Yahweh's ways to become our ways. For our imaginations to be baptised into, saturated by Yahweh's generosity. And when we do that, when we recognise the incredible generosity of the Lord, that we've seen throughout this psalm, that we've seen throughout our lives, surely we come to see the world differently. The world we live in is not one of grasping and limitation, but of abundance and generous kindness. We're freed from the stifling atmosphere, the poisonous air of the economy of grass, to breathe the fresh air of grace of covenant faithfulness, covenant love, mercy and steadfast love, of chesed. This psalm invites us to inhabit that world, to breathe that air, as of course does Jesus. For we serve a father, do we not, who gives good gifts. We depend on a God who sends rain on the just and the unjust, we gather, as Paul puts it, knowing that in God's economy, those who gather a lot don't have too much and those who gather a little don't have too little. So much of the scriptures that God has given to us paint this picture of a God of kindness, of generosity. A picture in which we both see who God is and who we truly are. It's a picture through which we see the world. And we come to recognise this as a world of abundance and freedom. A world in which the fresh air of chesed clears our 
head and gives us life. That's the real world. Not the miserly world we think we inhabit. And so, as we descend into, I guess we all have to descend at some point into the grey-brown muck of ordinary life, don't we? We have to come down from the hill into Sydney, literally or metaphorically. This psalm still invites us to cough up that polluted air, to spit out those false values of an economy of privation and imagination of striving and grasping and clinging on to privilege and parking spots and toilet paper for dear life. And it fills our lungs with the fresh air of God's economy of generosity. It shapes our hearts and heads and hands with an imagination of receiving and thanking and giving with the same abundant freedom with which we have received. We breathe in, we breathe out. What does that mean for you as you think about your family life, whatever your family looks like at the moment, as you think about work or not work, as you think about the people you engage with in your communities, be they in community gardens or just the people on the other side of your fence? How does this recognition of the richness, the inexhaustible kindness of God, how does that reshape how you see them and how you might respond to them? Shall we pray? Our Lord and God, we, we do thank you once again. We thank you for that kindness which has rescued us from darkness and brought us into life. That kindness which has shed light into our darkness. That kindness that has set us free from bondage to ourselves and to sin and to the devil and has brought us into the broad place of your freedom. We thank you for that kindness that we experience every day in the air we breathe, the water we drink, the city we live in, the friends you've given us, the family that you've called us to love, the tasks you've placed before us. And as we thank you for that rich kindness, we ask that you might continue to reshape us by your spirit, that becoming a bit more like the Lord Jesus, we might be people through whom your abundant goodness flows into the lives of those who desperately need us, need us around us. The Lord Jesus, please continue to reshape us by your word and your spirit that we might bring you glory in your word.